0: Now, what would you say to a young filmmaker who asked you the question, should I go to film school
1: or not? I'm very appreciative of all the people I met at NYU. And certainly it's continued to open doors for me. It's hard to say. It's like, if I could go back, I don't want to sound negative about my school. I feel a certain loyalty to it. But the cliche that all of like the big established filmmakers say of the way to find Out if you're a movie maker or how to become one is to make movies and to just get whatever you can together and make stuff is true. Rain Podcast.
0: Hi, this is Nova Lorraine, and this is the second season of Unleash Your Supernova, an award-nominated podcast. And as you know, we are scouring the globe looking for the next big names in fashion, culture, and technology. So we can get tips and hacks from these amazing talents to help inspire you along your journey of growth and to help you bring out your supernova And as you know, I am releasing a book, same name as the podcast, called Unleash Your Supernova. It is published by Skyhorse Publishing and being distributed by Simon & Schuster. And so look out for that book being released March 2021. And it is on sale right now, if you hear the show before then, via Barnes & Noble or Amazon. So again, if you like to be an early bird, definitely check out the pre-sale links on barnesandnoble.com and Amazon. So without any further delay, I want to introduce you to my guest for today's show. His name is Justin Swibel. He is a filmmaker originally from Chicago, now living on the West Coast. He is a graduate from the NYU Film School he has sold an award-winning international short film, as well as produced many products within the film industry. In addition to founding Colorful Realm, a entertainment startup that has a 10-picture slate. Did you guys hear that? 10 pictures, 10 films, guys. Welcome, Justin Swibel. Hi, Justin. Hi, Nova. Thank you for having me. And thank you for taking some time out. I know your schedule is really busy, especially running a startup within the film industry. So I'm excited to talk to you. I'm a huge film buff. I love filmmaking. I love the art of filmmaking. And I know that's something that really makes you stand out amongst other filmmakers. And I also love intriguing and smart storytelling. And so I'm really interested in hearing some stories from you and then delving a little deeper into Colorful Realm. So you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) All right, cool. So think of any story that you would love to share. It could be funny. It could be heartbreaking. It could be about your journey in founding Colorful Realm. Or maybe it's a story about one of the past films you've produced or stories or screen Plays that you've written, or maybe Justin as a kid. So tell me a story that really sticks with you that you would like to share with us that we can learn from.
1: I recently reached out to an old NYU instructor of mine who taught me in my very first course at the school. The course was called Digital Frame and Sequence. And I'll recount a quick story that I recounted to her, which taught me a great lesson that connects to colorful realm and in our mission to find freedom through a certain level of constraint that I think is welcome in the movie-making community and certainly in the mid-level market. So we were assigned to take a roll of 24 or 36 exposures, and I was, along with my classmates, explicitly told not to shoot on negative because it has more latitude, it has three or four more stops, and we hadn't yet really mastered the concept of setting your gray and of exposing and lighting around that with the Kodachrome we were shooting on. And I took matters into my own hands and decided to shoot on color negatives and determined that I was adequately prepared and understood the concepts that we had learned while shooting on reversal in the first few weeks. And I remember when I started to show my work, about four slides in, my professor stopped and said, wait a minute, what did you shoot this on? And I said, I shot in a negative with a smile on my face. And I was quickly deflated when I was told that I wouldn't be allowed to show the rest of my work because I had broken the rules and had not followed her instructions. So I was very upset. When the class ended, I came up to her. I said, how could you, why wouldn't you let me show the work? And she said, look, first of all, you're not ready. And secondly, you are rating yourself of the opportunity that I'm giving to learn the rules before you break them. Because when you shoot on negative, you can be messy and still be okay. And you don't wanna be that way. You wanna be a precise and deliberate photographer. And I really appreciated her insight and I took it to heart. And it's that sort of discipline, which I and a lot of people don't really associate necessarily with filmmaking.
0: And I like the fact that the story that you told was based out of all the experience you've had on the East Coast and West Coast and all the filmmaking that you've done and the stories you've written, both for yourself and other companies. You went back to a time when you were in school with a very specific course. And I've heard both sides of the story being expressed or argued if a filmmaker should go to film school or not. Since you've gone to film school, and I'm sure you've interacted with those that haven't, what is your take after the fact, having gone through that experience and being as experienced as you are in the industry now, what would you say to a young filmmaker who asked you the question, should I go to film school or not?
1: I'm very appreciative of all the people I met at NYU and the professors. And certainly it's continued to open doors for me. And even if I wasn't always pleased with the education or the decisions that were made, I was exposed to a lot of great equipment. And I was taught, you do this a certain way, which helped Because sometimes, even if you disagree, it's nice to hear what you disagree with. Sometimes it's easier to know what you want when you sort of are presented with something that you don't. It's hard to say. It's like, if I could go back, I don't want to sound negative about my school. I feel a certain loyalty to it, but the cliche that all of like the big established filmmakers say of the way to find out if you're a movie maker or how to become one is to make movies and to just get whatever you can together and make stuff is true. And you do, whether you go to film school or not, two things you have to do. One of them is you have to watch movies And you have to watch lots of them and find out so you have a frame of reference. Historically, what has been done and who do you relate to? Who do you like and why? And then number two, you have to make stuff. And now, more than ever before, you can make great stuff on your phone or in the color correction software, editing software, and VFX software is so accessible that you have to experiment. I guess the third thing, though, I said there are two things. The third thing is screenwriting. There's film craft, but then there's also learning screenwriting. You really have to just, I would say like the art of dramatic writing, just read a book or two about it. And then to me, it's just a matter of practice. After you write 10 to 15 screenplays, then you sort of feel a little bit more comfortable. At first, for me, it was not comfortable, but I started to read screenplays by the writers who I thought were the best. And I could see right away what I liked and what I would like to sort of ape, at least at the beginning. And then it's just a matter of, it's like, establish your premise, find your character. Are you going to demonstrate the truth or the untruth of that premise? It's, I think it's simpler, much simpler, than they made it out to be in some of the writing courses at school. And I think a lot of us were sort of chasing our tails because it seemed so intellectual. But it's really not. It's just a matter of you lock yourself in your room and you have to just write. And you have to just write again and again and iron it out until it gets to be something that you think works. And you can tell if it works based on your intuition and then also just based, again, on like some models that you can use. Other screenplays you like and also just some like perhaps good analysis of three-act structure. At least if you want to break the rules again, it's like at least know what is expected. And lots of the best movies deviate from that, but they know they're deviating from it.
0: That's a good point. And I like how you stated the, I hear 10 a lot. I think you said at least 10 or 12 screenplays later, you started getting comfortable And there's that 10,000 hour rule in terms of mastering a sport or skill or something like that. And so I guess the point is, like you said, just do it, right? The more you do it, the more comfortable you become. And if you're not in school, a formal program, there are sources out there that you can access and read and apply that information.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I forgot to say also though, One thing that I think was very much missing from my education and from sort of my purview and the purview of basically all of my contemporaries, because we were just stuck in this potboiler of cinema and obsessed with movies, we didn't really know it all. And we relied way too much, I think, on producers and line producers to understand the practical aspects of movie making, And because If you don't know it all about that, that's why a lot of the times the artisans end up so submissive to the executives. Because the executives understand the actual impact and logistics of how to get it done. But at the beginning, I suppose, when you're being creative, you don't necessarily want to think about that too much. But at the same time, if you want to make something that can actually be physically produced... You do sort of want to say to yourself, well, look, if I set this movie that right now I've set in like 50 different locations, if I could minimize that to 15 and have one or two primary ones, well, then suddenly this becomes viable. Maybe I could make this independently or maybe I could sell this to a company or a studio. I guess it would also be if you just bite the bullet and you learn about film finance, how movies are actually financed, also how movies are budgeted and scheduled. Then you have the sort of discipline and the balance that allows you to read your screenplay like it's a spreadsheet. And as cold as that sounds, it's a skill that if you have it, it's liberating because then you can look at it through sort of another lens and stop being so necessarily concerned with other people's opinions of it. Because if you like it and you know it works, then it's just a matter of also figuring out How does it work practically? And I would say that that's actually a missing tool from a lot of people's belts. And that's why things go so crazy. That's why Colorful Realm sort of also exists because the development situation in Hollywood and for a lot of independent companies throughout the world is very disorganized. There's no cut and dry sort of way that they do it. Everything is a case-by-case basis. And I think that we can standardize it and actually remove a lot of the doubt and the excuses of writer's block and all this stuff if we sort of just wear two hats at once. You have to think a little bit like a producer, I think, if you want to be a really good writer for film because you're not writing a novel.
0: Right, right. No, that's a good point. I think that's a really good point. Maybe adding some entrepreneurial courses into the film making programs at these schools might help as you were talking about financing and budgeting and scheduling at just... My mind is going to startups and prepping for round A funding and all of that jazz. So that's a good point. And I think that issue exists in the creative industry as a whole. You have your true artists and they are very much dependent on decision makers to say, yes, I will back you. I will fund you. I will support you in this way financially to grow your art, to expose your art to a larger number of people. And those artisans are not familiar with that side of the industry. And so it does hold a lot of great talent back. So it's a really good point that you bring up. And also a way that you and Colorful Realm is disrupting the film industry. As you mentioned, some of these processes that you're putting into place based on your experience As a student and going after funding for projects, creating independent films yourself and seeing the holes and issues that exist, the nonconformity, the writer's block, as you mentioned, and projects that go over budget or over schedule or beyond the schedule. So that's exciting. I would like to turn the mic over to you because I do want to get to some of these questions that our listeners have submitted for you. You're going to host for a little while. You're going to ask me some questions and then we'll then move into our last segment with our listeners questions. So I'm handing the mic. What do you want to ask me?
1: Thank you. And welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs) I've been following you for a while and I'm inspired by your trajectory. And as I said in our initial correspondence, your quadruple threat status of being able to wear several hats and know human psychology and also be involved in journalism and in fashion and storytelling. And I wanted to actually ask you about something you just sort of touched upon, which is in film, and I think the same applies for fashion. There's the creative aspect of it, of being able to come up with an idea, let's say for a a line. And then right the first thing that you're gonna be asked after they maybe approve of the aesthetics is what's the budget? And this is the question that all filmmakers constantly hear. And for a, a long time, maybe a decade, I didn't understand that there is a way to answer that question, but it's not just by hiring a line producer to do an arbitrary breakdown of your script, you have to actually know, I think to a certain extent, the identity of commercially what you aim to achieve with your movie, because you can make the same movie for a million as you could make it for 40 million. So my question to you is, do you agree? How have you found this to apply, if so, to your own efforts? And if not, same thing.
0: With fashion, And having interned, so I went to design school and was in that art bubble for that time period and started working in the industry. But when I was interning while in school, I still was very caught up with the craftsmanship of the product. And I have always been attracted to high-end fashion, couture fashion, which cost the most to make. (laughs) And the least commercial, at least from that product, But what I also did was I studied the history of fashion and I studied the most successful brands from a commercial standpoint as well. And a good amount of them were high fashion brands. And what was the formula? What did they do? And understanding the place of these aspirational garments within the business model made it a lot easier for me to understand how they were able to justify spending as much as they did on these garments and not selling a certain number to meet the bottom line. And when I understood the psychology of that, it made sense. So I actually spent time taking courses in entrepreneurship and marketing and working with an advisor who was a CFO with 30 years of experience within the fashion industry and working on a business plan, really understanding my target audience understanding the holes that were existing in the market and how to create a product that fill the need at a price point and be able to interject this high price garment within the whole story. And so with my plan and looking at high fashion, the aspirational items are what drives the sales, the less expensive items. And so those were the hooks, so to speak, the magnet to that brand where you have a piece that is exclusive to a certain number of people. And then you introduce a larger number of more accessible items and then those are gobbled up. And once I understood that, then it made a lot more sense as opposed to, hey, I want to be a couture designer and I'm going to sell gowns anywhere from $3,000 to $30,000. Who wants to line up and buy my dresses and expect to have a scalable enterprise? Just on that notion where a lot of designers, they pick a price point based on their own shopping habits and they use themselves as the customer and they're typically very artistic And they open shop, especially now with Instagram. Boom, you make a few things, you put on the camera, and then you're in business. But there's usually not a sustainable, scalable plan that's attached to that very beautiful artistic collection. And so eventually those designers tend to run out of cash, especially during economic downturns or situations that we're dealing with now environmental situations or situations just out of your control, maybe with the economy or natural circumstances. And I think because I started with an academic background and I love stats and numbers and research. So those are skills that were things that I like to do, (laughs) but not all artists want to research numbers and analyze statistics. And so that I think was helpful for me in creating a plan. I think the other issue for me that I ran into was not so much having a prepared plan in numbers, but finding a partner, an investor, that understood the industry enough to take the chance. And so I think, again, when you're dealing with more artistic projects, it is a little harder to fund from that perspective, even if you have a good plan.
1: Right. So your basic point is like, you need the context. You need the context of a business plan to understand how does this price point figure into the grand scheme of things and into these companies' balance sheets?
0: Right, exactly. I think it's fine to do something that's high price. I actually prefer quality over quantity. And so, however, at the end of the day, it's still a business. So how do you turn that into revenue and something sustainable? And there's many ways to do that. But you really do have to see it through that full cycle. And if that's not your thing and in your wheelhouse, then find someone, an advisor, a mentor, a team member, a co-founder, someone to help you round out those skills. And for me, I didn't come from a financial background, but I had an amazing mentor and advisor that helped me truly understand line by line the numbers behind the business and why things were the way they were. And as you said, it turned this art into a spreadsheet. They were the same language. They were the same thing. And that's what helped me. But without that, then I probably would have been like, oh, I have this beautiful collection and let's go and hope a certain amount of people buy it and to make money to make the next garment. And that's how a lot of designers did it. They still do it. Whatever they sell, they put that money back in the business and they hope again that they can grow at a rate that they can support themselves. But just from my experience, especially with the magazine, a lot of designers, truly promising designers that we've met and interviewed or featured just don't have the longevity because eventually they do run out of cash.
1: Right. Would you say that you find your entrepreneurial sort of bend has something to do with your ability to be resilient and to sort of understand things from the money people's perspective?
0: I do. I also would say resilience, I think, is more tied in with my background. I was born in Jamaica. My parents immigrated here when I was a baby and they were in their 20s raising a family of four children that grew into six children. <laughs> and just seeing how hard they worked and what they achieved with what they had was so inspirational to me. And that showed me that you could do anything if you put your mind to it and you have the right support system and you have the right mindset and attitude. And I think my personality tends to see the glass half full versus half empty. And I grew up playing games and puzzles with my brothers. I have four. And that taught me strategy and I love problem solving. So I feel the resilience is a combination between my just upbringing, my cultural background, what I experienced growing up within a family of six children, immigrant family, But then also my cheery disposition, because that's just who I am and the love of strategy, game theory and problem solving, because I do feel that if one way doesn't work, no problem. That wasn't the way. Let's find another that doesn't work. Okay, let's find another until we find the right pieces that fit. And I feel that a lot of people don't have that patience or their disposition is either neutral or the glass is half empty as opposed to half full. And that is what tends to not make them last the journey. I feel that resilience, perseverance is truly important, especially if you are an artist trying to make a livelihood out of your art or your gift, or if you're an entrepreneur and you want to bring something to life that doesn't exist. Like you are the first doing this. There is no roadmap. And so you really truly have to have that positive perspective and jump into it as a game and say, all right, well, we didn't win the World Series this year, but you know what? There's next year and there's the year after. What do we need to improve? And how do we reassemble the team? Or what new training skills do we need to build? And I think that mindset is truly important as it relates to resilience.
1: I was drawn to you for your optimism and your cheery demeanor, which is really just so important to have. And it's infectious. Ah. (laughs) I want to hear about Maybe a time when you felt like you should give up and you didn't, and you thought that you were making a mistake by persisting, but then something, you know, turned out well. Do you have any like inspiring kind of stories?
0: Yeah, I'll definitely share a story. There's so many of I wanted to give up story (laughs) so many times. And one of the reasons why I launched Rain just from my personal experience and wanting to give up, and I do feel I'm so grateful that I didn't, but... I would say a time that stood out to me was when I was still doing my fashion company full time and I had raised enough money to launch my collection. I had a showroom on 7th. I was getting awards. I was dressing celebrities. I was doing all the things that you were told to do and all the boxes that needed to be checked in order to have a scalable business. Again, this was a different time, but I was meeting with investors. I was meeting with venture capitalists and things like that. And again, the art industry is a very intimate industry where you need someone that is just as committed to the art as they are the bottom line. And finding that special person is hard. And so I had an experience with some not so scrupulous individuals that were posing to be investment brokers and they weren't. And that was to me, the straw that broke the camels back. And I literally was just so tired at that point. I also had three little ones and I was balancing running my fashion company and being a mom to three little ones. and, And I was tired. And I was frustrated and I was like, well, I did everything I was told to do. Why is this not working? And then as I was like ready to just like throw in the towel and say I'm done, I said, well, you know what? I am going to take this into my hands. I'm not going to allow my destiny to be cut short based on the power I'm giving others. I'm going to find a way within my means and my resources to continue My dream of fashion. And so miraculously, I was able to get a business loan that allowed me to open a store in New York. And that was how I grew my business. And during that time period and the frustration I was going through, that inspired Rain Magazine. And I was like, I want to create something that is going to help others not go through some of the pitfalls and frustrations that I I'm going through because i was still going through them. And I feel that there needs to be something out there that's truly committed to this individual. And so I'm so glad I didn't give up there, but I was so ready. I was so tired because up to that point, there was so much money that was spent because we were just self-funding the business. And when you're doing a high priced product, it costs a lot of money to produce it and market it and sell it. And so, yeah, that was definitely a time that sticks out to me where I was like, I'm done. I'm just so tired. But I'm glad I did keep going because then Rain was born as well.
1: I'm compelled by the paradox you've underlined. You were trying to make something of your business opportunity and you felt at the same time like you wanted to help other people avoid the pitfalls that you had experienced. Can you talk about that and how your experience as an entrepreneur has been altruistic in ways and how it's sort of like what I've found at least so far is that it's not nice. It doesn't feel good to be selfish and to do things just for you. And the more you get into developing any sort of business, you realize that you really need a full group of people like that. It's really about doing it for the collective.
0: No, you're absolutely right. Rain was my aha moment where I decided to leave clinical psychology behind to move into the field of fashion. And it was how I was able to bring those two together because I always liked helping people and it's something that's just a part of me. And I was like, oh, this is it. Now it makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it was my way of giving back. And it was the pain and the pains (laughs) that I had gone through during those early years, launching my fashion company. I truly was compassionate for anyone else that wanted to do something similar, turn their passion and gift into a livelihood. And how I was helping through my fashion was I was empowering women through clothing. And so this was important for me, this niche that I found. And through Rain, I was empowering other creatives, other entrepreneurial individuals to never give up on their dreams. Like no matter what, like find a way. And sometimes it literally is just that one thing, that one little idea, that one person that smiles at you as you're picking up your cup of tea or coffee, the one person you meet in the elevator that becomes your champion. It's literally just being able to take that next step and just being intentional on not giving up. And experiencing that myself, I was like, there has to be a way to help others not experience so much of the deep, deep dips in the roller coaster. And that's where Rain was. And actually, I created a team virtually who believed in the same mission. I had an art director in Boston, an editor in Canada. The marketing person was in Texas and myself and photographer were in New York. I knew how to write. So I was confident there. I was like, okay, let's launch a magazine no business plan. (laughs) It was, let's do this for all other creative entrepreneurs. Everyone was like, yes, let's do it. And literally with no money, we put together this amazing publication using all of our talents and the passion we had to help other creative entrepreneurs and give them a voice and them a platform and allowing them the ability to learn and get inspired by other stories And so I do think a lot of entrepreneurs are successful because they do come up with an idea that will help the greater good and it's bigger than them. And having gone through this with launching several startups, I think it is super important that you have something that's bigger than you because it is a marathon. It is very much a roller coaster and getting through those deep points help when it's not just you, the ego and whatever else, but it's, no, I have to keep going because it's bigger than me. And that's literally those days where I wanted to give up even during rain, entering a publishing industry without a publishing background in a time period when social media was exploding and was, this isn't about me. It's about all those that can be affected by this. And if it's just one person that's inspired to never give up, you never know that one person can be the next Nikola Tesla or Steve Jobs or Oprah Winfrey or the founder of Nike or whomever. And so it is important for me what I'm doing through rain. But it literally took that like knockout, like it was a knockout punch, <laughs> but I got up. And I think it's important for anyone listening, but if you're interested in being an entrepreneur to find a reason that's bigger than you. And it really, really does help get you through those slower times or darker times.
1: I would agree. I think that it's nice to always to talk to other entrepreneurs because this sort of utopianism is a par for the course and you really have to apply it on a daily basis in order to keep up the hope and your sort of alignment with that higher cause. If you start getting too insular or too certainly cynical, you can really lose steam. I would agree with you that It's essential to have at least one partner, if not more, to bounce ideas off of and to collaborate with. And really, it's so rewarding to have somebody who says, I understand that you're proposing something new and something that other people disagree with, but I believe in it. That's better fuel than anything.
0: Yeah, that energy, that co-energy that you can get from that person. Yeah, that does make a huge difference. And I think those early days of starting Rain, I think it was critical being able to feed off of these other creatives that were just as passionate for the cause. It does give you a lot of momentum, (laughs) especially in the beginning. And so, yeah, no, I equally, I agree in terms of it's fun, Speaking with other entrepreneurs that are on that same thought process and are doing something that they feel is really going to benefit whoever's going to be receiving the products. And I meet some incredible minds on each and every week, if not each and every day. And it definitely keeps me going for sure, because I learned something new from everyone. I'm like, oh, that's such a good point. I love that. And this is going to lead us into the last segment of the show. So I'm going to take the mic back and thank you, host, Justin. Those are some really great questions. And I haven't thought about some of those stories in a while. So I appreciate all that and your kind words as well. And so we have a few questions and I'm just going to start with one that's around funding. And this is from Maya. What is the best way to raise money for new ventures like Colorful Realm?
1: (laughs) The best way to raise money for a venture? Well, first of all, you put together the right team of people whose credentials, including your own, together comprise a portrait of excellence and professionalism and responsibility. Then to put together the plan, probably parallel to the accumulation of partners. And then from there, I think reaching out to people either specific to the space that your opportunity is in or maybe doing more of a broad spectrum search. There's a lot of private equity and venture capital available now and the venture capital investment trend has been going up for the past 10 years steadily so it's really just a matter of the right package first which is the plan and the team and then connecting with the right sort of investment group and determining do you want private equity do you want venture capital do you want an institutional investor what's appropriate and what's best for the business and then also just Who do you connect with? And you'll find somebody. Eventually, if you are confident and forthright and if you are presenting something compelling, and even if you're not, you'll probably connect with people who are generous enough to give you the feedback that you require. And usually if you hear feedback from several people that is somewhat similar and seemingly credible, you can take it and inculcate it and then apply it.
0: That's a good point, especially the feedback and sometimes just asking questions, probing questions from potential investors to get insight before you even approach them to prepare your package. And I think that that's really great advice because I think financing a film is a very daunting thought for a lot of filmmakers, creating the story, bringing it to life but how do you convince someone to give you the money in order to do that? And I think that's a big wrinkle for a lot of individuals. So even just hearing from someone who's been successful at doing that for several projects, I think is really inspiring. And I have a question from Chantel. And this question is, what is the criteria for finding A-list actors for your film
1: and how do you secure them? What is the criteria for finding A-list actors? Well, Without getting into too specific of detail, our company's plan will require us to put together, which is common obviously to the Hollywood packaging process, put together a cast that makes sense with our budget. And you determine that to some extent by virtue of fielding the sales estimates you can get in distribution revenue for a given cast. Because there's a tangible market worth that many actors do have internationally because of their track record. And then as far as getting them attached goes, well, I think it's different for every individual producer or company or studio. Sometimes it's the material that draws the actor or actress in. Sometimes it's the compensation you're offering or the back end participation you're offering. Sometimes it's just because of who you are and what you've done. But I would say for someone who is not super established, you require either someone who is to be involved and or the capital that is necessary to even make a credible offer that the agents will take seriously. It's kind of a dry answer, but...
0: No, but it's at least if you follow the steps, it's attainable as a new filmmaker. And so that's good. I think half the battle is just knowing And then now that you know, okay, well, here are the things that I need to do. So I think that was really helpful and insightful because especially for an independent filmmaker, they may not even consider an A-list actor where some A-list actors would do a project, like you said, based on who you are, based on the artistry of the story or who you have attached to the project. So I think that's super important to know. We have time for one more question, and this is actually a two-part question, so I'll leave it up to you if you want to answer both or just one. Bryson is asking, do you have an animation studio, part A, part B is, and how does your writing team work?
1: Well, number one, we will be pursuing several animated features, and we will also be exploring the potential for a motion capture movie. We don't have an animation studio. We're a venture fund production company hybrid. So we'll raise the capital to then put together projects as our own ventures or as co ventures with other companies. And certainly for the animation pictures, we will work with the established players. What was the other one? And how does your writing team work? Well, the development process that we will be instituting is very different as far as the adherence to time scheduling and budgeting that is not standard by any means. We will be typically coming at projects that are book-to-film adaptations, and we will be working with our development department and our writers, which will be the screenwriters on the project, to adapt and to work with a different sort of feedback system that allows the screenplays to be generated in a much quicker time. And that'll just be by, honestly, having more faith in the source material and also in the writers that we task to do these jobs who are very talented and a lot of the times are stymied by a lot of second-guessing. So it's like a hands-on, hands-off approach that involves book-to-film adaptation with a development department that works closely with our writers to get them to do something on their own, but with lots of important cues.
0: Got it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was very thorough. And anyone that's interested in film, filmmaking, writing, or directing, I think is going to get something out of our conversation today. And then in general, anyone that's interested in turning a creative idea into a viable project will absolutely get something from today's show. So, so grateful for you to spend time with me today. And thank you for hosting part of the show as well. I am looking forward to following the journey of Colorful Realm. I am just blown away with the concept and excited that you are disrupting the film industry with this new perspective on how to produce films and not compromising quality as you are putting out a very viable product. So I'm excited to follow you and looking for the new, whatever the first release is that your team releases into the marketplace. And so if anyone wants to follow you, get in touch with you, what would be the best way that they can do that? Ask you a question.
1: What would you recommend for them to do? Well, first of all, thank you very much. You're a ball of sunshine. I like hearing about your story and about how you were able to overcome that initial hurdle and secure that loan. It's common to so many success stories that it's like the door is locked and you just have to go through the window sometimes. That's right. (laughs) love that. I would say LinkedIn is the best way to get in touch with me.
0: Okay, perfect. So Justin Swibel on LinkedIn. And if you don't have the app, you need to download it. One of my favorite apps. And again, thank you for joining us for another episode of Unleash Your Supernova. We release a new show every two weeks. This is season two. And if you have any questions whatsoever, definitely reach out to me as well at Nova by the Sea on Instagram as well on LinkedIn at Nova Lorraine. Love to hear from you. And until next time, stay tuned. Thanks again for joining.